Dan Bartlett is the Executive Vice President of Corporate Affairs at Walmart and longtime key advisor to President George W. Bush. He joined former White House colleague and current Bush Center Senior Advisor Kevin Sullivan and host Andrew Kaufman to share advice for up-and-coming leaders and their lessons from D.C. The key difference that comes from operating on a campaign or operating in, in a corporate environment is the, the urgency and pace that comes in the accountability that comes with an election day. Hear from Dan about his career progression from Austin to the White House to one of the biggest corporations in the world on this episode of The Strategist, presented by the George W. Bush Presidential Center. Welcome to Dan Bartlett, the Executive Vice President of Corporate Affairs for a little company called Walmart, where he's responsible for government relations, public policy, corporate communications, philanthropy, and social responsibility and sustainability. He also, though, is a longtime key advisor to President Bush, all the way back to his cam- to campaign for Texas governor, into Austin, into the, White- into the presidential campaign, and into the White House. Dan, thank you so much for hanging out while you're here to talk to the presidential leadership scholars. Yeah, it's great to be here. Appreciate it. And our co-host is Kevin Sullivan, our senior advisor at the Bush Center, and who also happens to have sat in the same chair as Dan as director of communications at the White House. Sully, thanks for lunch today, but next time you're paying. I appreciate you having me back on The Strategist, and I'm looking forward to our conversation with uh, great American Dan Bartlett. Great American. I like that. Um, so uh, let's go back in time some, uh, back in the Wayback Machine to around, around, right around 2000. We are on a podcast called The Strategist, named after, of course, Strategery. But in 2000, you were in the comms shop for the presidential campaign, and now SNL is coming, coming along and is highly influential, and they've painted this caricature of President Bush um, as a you know, little country, messes up words some. As a communications person, what, were you, what was going through your mind as this is starting to pick up steam in, back in 2000? Yeah, you know, it's interesting thinking back to those times. That's really when I was making, from 1998 to 2000 into the presidential campaign was where I really started to make that pivot into communications. My role mostly during the governor's days was in the policy arena. And uh, during the re-election campaign for a governor, I was issues director on the re-election campaign. But that was when National Democrats, the Democratic National Committee, and other, the speculation was already starting that he was going to run for president. And so they were already, and Gary Morrow was the land commissioner, the Democratic land commissioner who decided to take one for the team and run against a highly popular uh, Governor George W. Bush. But they used him really as as the person to trial test a lot of the attacks on Bush's record in Texas and those things. And that's when my job started really starting to shift into a communications role. And then in the 2000 campaign, I really had one foot. I was kind of the seesaw between policy and communications and helped coordinate a lot of the rapid response and those things. But the point you're making about um, narratives and caricatures and those things, they're really important because, and I always talk about this from a standpoint of it's, it's a part of the campaign that gets the least amount of attention, but I actually think has... Uh, the biggest impact on the outcome. And that is, um, we also focus on the last 30 days of a campaign. I actually think the first 30 to 90 to 120 days of the definition, I call the definitional phase of the campaign. Because by, if you think about it practically, the candidate who sets the terms of the debate, either on the issues or traits that either play to their strengths or to their opponent's weaknesses, 
usually is the one who wins on election day. And so we were very aggressive in the early part of that period of setting a pretty meaty agenda around a lot of the same themes, themes that had made him successful as, uh, as governor. However, there are other elements to a narrative than policy papers and what your agenda is going to be. It is kind of the early formation of the personality and traits, and we're seeing that as we're you know as we turn to another presidential uh, election now, and there's new players on the national stage. Um, and so, one of the things that while this SNL skit, strategy, these things had this kind of elitist mocking tone to it. Um, one of the things that is just gold in politics is authenticity. And and it was really important um, for people to understand um, that, and what ultimately was one of the enduring contrasting elements of the 2000 campaigns was the relatability of George W. Bush versus Al Gore. Uh, Al Gore had a consultant to tell him what kind of, what color suit to wear, very wooden, all these different things. And we had a lot of fun ex- exploiting that. While, you know, old George W., you may not exactly like the way he may have said something. He may have tripped up his words. He's kind of a guy I'd like to have a beer with or like to I could I could see myself around a kitchen table or at a bar uh, hanging out with. And that that is just that is something you can't manufacture. If you don't possess that those elements, President Bill Clinton comes to mind, obviously, George W. Bush, others. Um, it's just such a, a scarce and, and very, um, precious commodity in politics. So we had a high level of tolerance, I would say, for some of those things mm-hmm. with regards to the, the quote unquote mocking of it. And a lot of it was the way President Bush handled it right. and, you know, where, uh, some politicians wouldn't have the thick skin and would get it. They would bridle at those types of things. He was able to to use it to his advantage and use humor and self-deprecation and, and, and humility, which I think is an enduring element of someone who comes from obviously the family of his, you, some would expect to have a level of pretense or entitlement. And that's the last thing you, um, you get when you spend any time with president Bush. And it's a, it's, it's something that I think has made a lot of people enduring fans of his. Back in 2016, Dan, we had Lorne Michaels, of course, the co-creator of Saturday Night Live here at the Bush Center. And President Bush, after the event, they went out to dinner, and this notion of strategy came up. And Lorne Michaels had to tell President Bush, you didn't actually say that. A writer made it up for Will Ferrell to deliver uh, as the final question of the skit on the debate with Al Gore. And they, President Bush didn't believe him at first. There was a little debate over, you know, I... Come on, I, I, I think I did say that. And he said, no, we made it up. And, uh, but in President Bush, the way the story goes, said to Lauren, but I did say misunderestimate, right? And as I actually looked it up, and as it turns out, he said it. Uh, he did say misunderestimate. They misunderestimated me November 6, 2000 in Bentonville, Arkansas, the home of Walmart. That must have been, if not the last, nearly the last stop on the campaign this year. So he didn't say strategy, but we've... Of course, we had meetings at the White House that were called, you know, strategery, and and uh, it's that ability to poke fun at himself that is so so appealing. I think. Yeah, and I think it just shows that he doesn't even know how wild his rhetoric gets at times. And uh, <laughs> but more, you know, one of the things was it's really important down the, the final stretch of the campaign. A lot of his missteps or malaprops, whatever you want to call them, 
you know, fatigue, people just uh, cannot appreciate the fatigue a candidate uh, is, is feeling, particularly you're just running on adrenaline at that point. And even the most gifted speakers or the most articulate, uh, you know, uh, speakers make similar gaffes down the stretch. It's one of those things that, you know, as a staff, you kind of, with President Bush, we kind of built it into the program. We knew it. Right. It, was matter, it wasn't a matter if, it was a matter right. of when, but for a lot, it, it was um, jolting for campaigns. But that, you know, that fatigue factor was real. And on the topic of campaign rhetoric, you know, it was, it's nasty today and people don't like it. It was, it was pretty rough in 2000. It was pretty rough years ago. But how, how is campaigning and, and the rhetoric of the campaign trail changed from 2000 to present day, do you think? Yeah, you have to remind yourself there were campaign, there were ad attacks against President Bush, then Governor Bush, uh, being responsible for the horrific uh, dragging to death of James Lynch uh, in Texas, just uh, irresponsible levels of 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 attacks. Um, it, it's happened. It, you go back in history. There, there's always been that nastiest. I think it's the the platforms that are delivering it now. I think it's so more visceral because it's so more much more accessible and it's you know it's in your feeds that you that that the public um is just more totally ensconced in and it's and it it does feel a little bit more like i think those of us who are practitioners of the trade kind of know what jersey uh certain members of the media or others where i think now there is people are self-filtering um what they want to see and hear and you can curate the experience is one. I think it's one of the challenges we face. That's why we have the situation where increasingly we don't have a single set of facts or a single set of, of parameters of debates anymore because people aren't even conversing in the same, in the same arena. Um, so a lot of talking past each other, a lot of rhetoric um, that, you know, in the former president, I don't think helped in that situation. Um, president Trump, uh, to be honest, uh, I felt like he, you know, there is a, a tone that is set at the top. Now, that's not to say that there haven't been Democrats that reciprocated. Absolutely. Um, so I could point out, I could point it on both sides. Um, but at times, you know, when you find ourselves where we are, and I think for the most part, President Biden has attempted to, to not go down that path. That's not to say that he's been clean in that respect. So I, you know, you're right. I mean, politics has been nasty for quite a while. They get, it's, it's a, it's a it's a tough sport. I think it's the delivery mechanisms and the platforms that are making it feel more intense. So I want to stay stay in the past for a little longer, um, right? We want to we'd love, you know, in the present day, you're you've got this really big role that we described at the top at Walmart, and as someone like that, you're you're always hiring people and, and looking for talent and looking for people to to be your to be uh, at your side. So going back in time to to the White House, uh, there was a young buck in the uh, education office named Kevin Sullivan that eventually somehow ended I think up. He was older than me. <laughs> <laughs> I, he was older than Bartlett, but he didn't look older than Bartlett. Uh, <laughs> dang, I set myself up for that yeah, one. Fair enough. So somehow Sully ends up in the West Wing, and there's a guy named Dan Bartlett that that had something to do with that. What's what's the story? How did Sully end up Come in on, the West Clark, Wing? Man. Well, um, you are. Uh, exact. I, I did hire Kevin um, with the aid and abetting of Secretary Spellings, who put a little bonnet in my ear saying, hey, you know, really been impressed with Sully. 
I was looking for, I had an incredible team. I had, I had plenty of people that I, um, I could have easily tapped for that role. Um, one of the things I'm constantly looking for is, um, obviously you always want fresh thinking. You want those things, you want creativity, you want storytelling and, and, you know, telling the Bush story and asking the same people who's been telling the Bush story for many, many years, it was pretty predictable what I was going to get from that. And Sully was new to politics for the most part. He had had a very accomplished career outside of politics before. I don't know why he decided to get in, throw his hat in the ring to get into public service. Glad he did. Um, but he had done sports and did other different things. And, and I felt like bringing somebody in who just would have a different perspective and maybe a, just a different dimension of looking at the same problem set that we were constantly dealing with. You love to have people in the foxhole that you can trust and people that, and there's a lot to be said for that. Then at the end of the day, I, I try more than anything else over the, my years of hiring people is, you know, life's too complicated as it is. Why should you make it more complicated by hiring people who you don't like or want to find? It's like hire yeah. people who are fun, hire people who are good people, hire people that, you're going to enjoy the journey with and anybody who's met Sully within the first, you know, five minutes, you know, at, at a minimum, you're going to have a good time. And, and we had a lot of good times, even though we were dealing with a pretty tough problem set, as I said, but, um, it was, uh, like I said, I think it, it probably raised some, some eyebrows when I, when we did that, but uh, looking back on it, it was absolutely the right thing to do. George Stephanopoulos and I went to lunch about five weeks into my time at the White House. And he said to me with affection, he didn't say it in a nasty way, but he said, I cannot believe you got this job. <laughs> and uh, because I was very aware that people toil in the political vineyard and work countless campaigns to get an opportunity like that. So uh, I will, other than to say, I'll always be grateful to Dan. It transformed my life, my family's life. I think about it 14 years after leaving. I think about it every single day. Not just the experience and the privilege and the honor to be around President Bush and to serve and all that, the friendships that were made uh, and, the, and the connections and everything that are for a lifetime. And uh, so, you know, I try to thank Dan every time I see him, but it, it really, uh, I don't know why he took, took that leap, but I'm, I'm glad he did. And, you know, being in Margaret's corner, you talk about relationship building, you know, Tom Luce vouched for me with Margaret, Margaret vouched for me That's with right. Dan, and, uh, and ultimately... Uh, you know, with President Bush. And so anyway, I'm grateful forever. Well, you play it forward. Like you've been very generous with your time as truly as a mentor to me. And, and I appreciate that. And I, I know that that probably started back with Dan. And But I tell you, it does go back to a, um, a governance or leadership model that President Bush established very early. And I, you know, I had a front row seat. I kind of grew up under uh, and learning um, very early in my career is that, the element of the, the the amount of trust and deference that President Bush places in his team and trusts them to make good choices. I went and talked to him about this. I said, "Hey, boss, this is um, a little." And of course, he knew Tom Lewis and those things, and he knew all the, the validating points. But at the end of the day, this was a it was a little unorthodox. It was not a a logical pick. And and he says. You know, Barty, if you think he's the right one, then let's go. And he just the trust element and always knowing, and that's just something is from a team perspective. If if there's ever a doubt in your mind whether your boss has your back, find another job. Get out 
Um, it's just, there's, it just doesn't, it, it, it's not sustainable. And so I've tried to always kind of, I learned that lesson from, from president Bush and have tried to, to do the same, but that was, you know, I know I had the freedom to make that decision based on my relationship with president Bush and the way that he governed. All right. Enough about all that. Let's just spend it. Let's, let's dig into yeah. your life. Yeah. The no. selling, the selling no. hour. Now. Come on. Uh, <laughs> I was trying to pivot into a Bush you, you insight, did. You not did. into a Sully insight. You did. I, I, I appreciate that. You and I have both worked in the political world, you more than me, but I had my, my run. And, and, uh, and then the corporate. In my years at NBC Universal and years at, at, uh, at Walmart, what does, in your view, does the corporate world do better or worse than the political world in terms of you know, communications in particular, but maybe even more broadly than, than that? I'm searching. Um, well, I'll give you my, my two cents, and then you can, you can chime in. Okay. So when I got to Washington after my time in New York at NBC, immediately I thought, well, these people really know how to define a message better than, than you know, what I found in New York and sort of the corporate communications world. But the two big areas, aside from that, the two really big ones was rapid response, which I know you had it up on the campaign. When there's a, a fact that's wrong, if something is inaccurate or intentionally misleading, we are going to set the record straight. We're going to do it quickly and we're going to do it effectively, even if we have to call somebody out. And, and it worked extremely well. In, in the political world. And the corporations, in, in, in my experience anyway, don't do that in the same way. And then the other area was surrogates. You know, who else can tell our story? The candidate can't be everywhere, so you enlist and empower other good messengers and surrogates. And, we, of course, we did it with the, even off the campaign trail using the cabinet and, and others, that notion of others carrying our, our message. Or just a few observations where I think that... No, those are all very important. I think, though... If you unpack it a little bit more, what I found to be underlying all that, the key difference that comes from operating on a campaign or operating in, in a corporate environment is the, the urgency and pace that comes in the accountability that comes with an election day. It is. It, it galvanizes everything. It drives meritocracy. There's not enough time for you to go through all of the politics of corporate politics, this or that, or play favorites. They're just stuff has to get done. It's got to get done today. You're living. Uh, you're living and dying by every. You can count how many news cycles you have left before the election. Corporations struggle to define their election day. Yeah, we have we have quarterly earnings, we have these kind of moments, but they come and go for the most part. And so I struggle with, or in in comparison, of how do you maintain and create a sense of urgency? How do you get that type of of? We talk a lot about um, about cooperation and about working across lines and divisions and. How do we collaborate better? Um, those, words, those words come to life in such a different way in politics because of that finality that comes with an election, even though obviously we went into overtime in 2000 and, and, a, and a little bit in 2004, but you knew there was an end and there was that, that accountability made you set aside the pettiness that kind of that can. Now, I've been fortunate that in the, in the scheme of corporate politics, uh, the culture at Walmart is one where that is not 
as bad as maybe I've seen at other companies when I was doing consulting. Um, and so, you know, the execute, the long form execution at companies uh, of comps and all that are really good. You know, at Walmart, we've had our moments of, uh, we have a really strong crisis capability. Um, we've been under the gun for a long time when you grew as fast as we did. And we had some in the early 2000, late nineties, early two thousands, we had a, a serious paid opposition. So Walmart had to adopt a lot of those political, um, tactics in order really because the the very license to operate as a company was coming under assault we were having a hard time citing stores and markets and particularly in urban markets and other places because unions were so strong there and so we had to do things differently the the real epiphany though from a corporate standpoint for us and for walmart's reputation was um, i talked about that definitional phase of the campaign and how critical it was well and this is not too dissimilar to a lot of fast-growing founder-led companies. I mean, I think about a lot of the stress that Amazon finds itself in, or maybe Facebook has for the last 15 years. What made them so great was that it was a just a you know a monolithic focus on the brand proposition, the customer proposition, and just crowd just ignore all the other noise. Sam Walton used to say, "Don't worry about what the New York Times says about us. Just keep your head down." And as long as we're taking care of customers and, and our employees, we'll be just fine. That, the cumulative aspects of that weight of attack over not just, in a, so we seeded Walmart in the 90s, late 80s and 90s, seeded the, the entire debate to our opponents and just took all of the incoming for the better part of a decade. And so we dug a pretty deep hole. And so your first, finally, when there was a, a, a revelation that we had to do something different their first instinct is what? Fight back. Right. Create the war room. The war room's got stood up. The fact sheets come out. The rebuttals are quick. Um, and there was a lot of high-fiving within the walls of Walmart. Hey, and even our employees out in the, out in the field and our stores because we were finally defending ourselves. And it, and it got our base more excited. And, and it maybe changed some opinions. But it didn't really move the needle. And it wasn't really until... 2005, 2006. At that time, under the leadership of our CEO at the time, Lee Scott, was saying, what if we just maybe listened to what the critics are saying? Is there a place to meet some of them halfway? And while we were never going to be a company that was going to embrace being unionized, were there things that were being said about us that we could do differently? And the first big area in which we did that was around sustainability. And and so that became a journey of like thinking about um, working on maybe reaching audiences or reaching people who otherwise wouldn't give you. So I think this notion, and you see a lot of people come out of politics who are now in corporate America, vice versa. So there's strengths and weaknesses with both. But I feel like that one thing is that campaigns will always have an advantage over is that sense of urgency that comes with the finality of an election day. So you're you're here today with you know being really generous with your time as a and a really in a big role and a busy role at Walmart, but you're here to talk to our presidential leadership scholars today, who yeah. are the next generation leaders. What kind of lessons do you plan on imparting to them? Well, you know, there was a lot of history made during President Bush's uh, time in office, and I think just in some respects, just providing a insights into some of the big decision-making, what were some of the guiding principles behind some of the big decisions President Bush made, some of the things we maybe not got right. And maybe if you look back on it, you felt like 
the areas we could have done better. And, and maybe some of the lessons of what are things that came out of my public life that you can apply in private life and vice versa. Um, and you know, the, the state of politics in America right now is, um, I think we could all agree is not where we want it to be. And, and if we can have an experience with scholars like this who come from all walks of life and in all different parts of the country and industry and those things who could have maybe pulled the, you know, the curtains back a little bit and show them behind the scenes of not only president Bush's presidency, but president Clinton's and, and show some of the inner workings of that. Maybe that they draw on that some, an experience and insights that then empowers them to help maybe change the current day politics in a better way. That might be a little lofty and ambitious, but, um, that's why we're here. Yeah. And you look at the backgrounds of a lot of the folks who, who are part of this, um, ambition is like their middle name. It's amazing to see, uh, what a lot of them are up to. I feel like a slacker being in their presence oh because God. they're, you totally. know, they're, they're young and they've accomplished a lot. You know, you earned president Bush's trust at a very young age. You were 22 when you, when you first got connected with him. What would you tell the scholars? Cause that's obviously the other, you can be talented, smart, you can have great ideas, but ultimately people have to trust, trust you to execute and to do the things you're going to say. But how, how did you earn a trust? I ask myself that question a lot. So, I you know it's it's interesting. I and a lot of my friends at the time is like, how did how did Bartlett kind of like jump the line here a little bit? Because we're all like around <laughs> yeah. the same age, right? And I tell you what, some of it's just dumb luck in some respects. I was an early riser, and we we first moved into our campaign. The campaign for governor started at a uh, in a back room office at Carl Rove's uh, consulting firm in Austin, Texas, where I was started as an intern and was one of the first paid people on that campaign with a guy named Vance McMahon. And we were building it. This was, so I got hired in October of 1993. So a year out from election day and started working on what was going to be doing a lot of the research into the issues around education reform, juvenile justice reform, welfare reform, tort reform were the four big issues. But when we moved to the campaign headquarters, and at that time, uh, President Bush was still living in Dallas. He was running the Texas Rangers. He was you know, running his business out of here. So campaign in Austin, uh, candidate in Dallas. I think we all remember uh, now know who worked for him that he was an early riser as well. And so when we got the new campaign headquarters, I was the first one always at the campaign. And whether I was doing clips or just whatever was supposed to be done that morning, um, we'd hear the phone start ringing like in the campaign manager's office, Joe Allball's office in different offices. And it'd roll over to the main one. And finally, I just pick it up. Who's this? And I was like, <laughs> it's Dan. And he's like, where's everybody? I was like, not here yet. Well, at least you're there. And I'm like, and so it started like every once in a while he called and I wouldn't tell anybody. He said, don't tell anybody. And it got to be like a, um, I tell him kind of what was going on in the press. Hey, I've read this, read this. And he's, then he'd be like, Hey, what's kind of campaign gossip or this or that. So I had this like direct access in a really unsuspecting uns, un, uh, way. So I developed a little bit of a rapport with him, but then as the, the years went on, I, you know, maybe out of stupidity or ignorance, I just had something about it. I just had a fearlessness of telling him what I thought. And 
and not being hesitant at all of maybe because I didn't have at that time I don't I didn't have a lot of ambition I wasn't you know I probably wasn't like Carl Carl was probably in sixth grade when he decided he was <laughs> going to run the world and you know uh President Bush talks about how he saved me from my fraternity life at University of Texas, and he probably did to a certain extent. I wasn't looking four or five steps ahead, and I was just living in the moment. Growing and up in Rockwall, you weren't planning to be a political operative or presidential advisor? No. Um, a friend of mine's dad ran for mayor. I worked on that. And then I, you know, because I, um, I got into politics, like, I mean, I was from Rockwall, went to Texas, and I wanted to stay for the summer. Uh, this was my second, I think between my sophomore and junior, I didn't want to go back home for the, for the summer. So my mom's like, you got to get a job. The state Senator for my district who was a old yellow dog Democrat, Ted Lyon got me a, a, a job at the Capitol as, you know, a Senate aide or whatever intern. And it was only there that I met a buddy who grew up in Haskell, Texas next to paint rot, Texas, which is where Rick Perry's from. Hmm. And Rick Perry had just switched parties, and Carl Rove was running his uh, campaign for land commissioner, I think it was, or I can't remember. Anyways, he goes to work for – I, I had no idea who Carl Rove was then. and um, and so, But he told me it paid more. And I was like, I'm in. I was like, I need some more money. So next week I, I land at Carl Rove's as an intern at Carl's. Uh, this was in 92. And we did a lot of the direct, he did a lot of direct mail at that time, uh, political fundraising, direct mail and stuff like that. And we were doing Bush Coyle stuff for the South and some other things. And that's when I really kind of got the bug. And interesting about that, you know, and then I said to him, I was like, I think I want to, this sounds like a pretty cool thing to kind of continue to do. And he's like, well, you need to get some direct campaign experience. And at that time, Kay Bailey Hutchinson was just starting the special election for U.S. Senate. Um, against Bob Kruger and she was viewed as the heavy favorite and she is so Carl's like kind of like this is the the surefire bet within like a day or two that George W. Bush comes through Carl's office and I meet him for the first time and at that time people saw this as a fool's errand that he was potentially going to run for governor I mean Ann Richards was wildly popular it was Jeb Bush not George W. Bush who was better positioned to win the governorship in Florida against Lawton Childs and so but I disliked him, and I was like, this sounds a lot more fun than even though if I would have used my head, I probably would have gone to work for K-Buddy Hutchinson on that campaign. So, as they say, the rest is history. Well, I love that uh, there, you, you talked about at the beginning of that story about uh, President Bush being up early, and uh, he's always early. Uh, to peel the curtain back, this interview is scheduled for 2.30. At 2.15, Executive Vice President of Corporate Affairs at Walmart rolls in, ready for the interview, 15 minutes early. I think there's a lesson there for us. He, uh, I do remember we were in Abilene, Texas during uh, the re-election campaign for governor, and he left my boss. He was late getting to the tarmac to get on the plane. He left him in Abilene, Texas, so... I learned at a very early time <laughs> in my career that you can get left. Well, it's, I'm it, glad you didn't leave me. I'm, I was uh, who we, we were waiting on Sully. We, we, actually, Sully was yeah. He rolled in five minutes after that, and so you know, still on time. Still on time. <laughs> uh, you know, I think uh, you talked a little bit about Walmart a second ago. Uh, what do you wish we all knew about Walmart? That's just not part of the common st- story of Walmart that, that you can tell us. Um. Interesting. It's a um, it's a fabulous company in the sense of 
the the founding principles and culture in which Sam Walton built the company on are still alive and well today. And I know it's, I, I, I you know, what's interesting about Walmart versus a lot of other companies, we have a daily referendum on our reputation, uh, 160 million customers a week just in the United States alone. Uh, people have a, there's very few undecided voters when it comes to Walmart. You either love us, there's, there's a handful that obviously don't. And so shifting opinion about us is, can be difficult at times. But also when you see the company that stepped up during Katrina or during the pandemic or different times of delivering vaccines or whatever it may be and testing and those things, it's because there's a, there's a heart and soul to this company and a deep sense of humility. Uh, and I think that's because it grew so fast that there's everybody there knew that there wasn't any one individual who could, um, who could run it by themselves. It was going to be a team effort. I remember Mike Duke, who's the CEO who hired me, I was kind of raising, you know, uh, when they were recruiting me to join the company, I was doing a lot of consulting and one of my big clients at the time was target. And, um, and you kind of have, I grew up, very familiar with Walmart growing up in a rural part of Texas. So I knew it from a brand perspective, but I started learning it more from a sophisticated standpoint, having advised one of their big competitors. And I was like, you know, how you interpret a company like Walmart depends on where you sit. And I told the CEO this, I was like, the further you are from Bentonville, Arkansas, the more arrogant Walmart looks, the closer you get here, the more humble you realize it really is. And to me, there's some storytelling that's missing potentially in there. Um, and it looks like you're kind of just this menacing big company trying to take over the world. And he had he, he chuckled at that and he said, we were more like baby Huey. He's like, we grew faster than our appendages and we just started bumping into things and knocking things over. But we were like just holding on for dear life. And and once I got that better sense of the the culture of the company – because I wasn't really inclined to take the job. I was, you know, had gotten out of DC and moved back to Austin, was running a company doing, doing great. The idea of uplifting, my wife had never been to Arkansas, much less. I'd, I'd been to Little Rock, but I'd never been to, to Bentonville. And so this, I, this notion of uprooting my young family and moving there was, but you know, they always say is, you know, you at least go listen. And I'm glad I did. And now, you know, June will be 10 years that I've been with the company. It's been great. Time flies. I think we, we always close with one final question, which is uh, the old, what are we not talking enough about that we should be talking about as a nation from your perspective? Um, there's a lot of conversation about um, the opioid uh, pandemic uh, crisis. I don't think we can put a fine enough point on how critical this problem is with young people. Um, and, particularly because of the, uh, and maybe I'm saying that I'm sensitive because I have kids that are at college age and you just, because it's intentional overdoses are one thing, but what's increasingly happening with fentanyl and these things that these offshoots of this, of this crisis is that um, even unbeknownst to the people who are taking something they thought is one thing and it's turning out to be something very different. I mean, it's the, the biggest killer of, 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 young adults in our country now. And it's, it's, it's just terrible. And the stories that come out of that, and we're obviously Walmart is a 
third largest pharmacy in the country. We are in these communities. We see it firsthand, both with the largest employer. We see a lot of different dimensions of this of this crisis. And like I said, I know there's a lot of coverage of it, but for whatever reason, it's not gripping the nation the way I think it needs to, Right. Uh, which is a problem. It's always the, the fifth or sixth headline. It's never yeah, the number one headline. That's right. And it's, it shouldn't be partisan. Um, and it's, you know, we, it, it should be one where there's, that should be a common agenda for everyone. We're all parents. We're all having a family member or know somebody who's been afflicted by it, increasingly too many. And, and, and the situation's not getting better. That's the problem. Well, Dan, thank you so much for... Didn't want to end on a downer there, but... Uh, well, then, you know, we're going to... We're gonna, it's going to be uplifting. I mean, I didn't bring up Purdue dollars. basketball. <laughs> well, yeah, do we know anyone who went to Purdue? Too do we know soon. any Boilermakers? <laughs> too soon. Thank God Indiana lost, too. But, uh, yeah, good, too you know, did they, other, did they lose to a 16, though? Did that? they lose to a 16 also? Next question. <laughs> it's way too soon. <laughs> Dan, thank you so much for doing this. A, for coming down to talk to the scholars, but also to spend time here with us. It's, it's, it's really appreciated. Absolute blast. Glad to be here. Thanks, Dan. To learn more about the Presidential Leadership Scholars Program, visit presidentialleadershipscholars.org. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Let us know what you think on social media, at The Bush Center, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. 